welcome to season two of the Security Escape podcast. My name is Tom and I'm a history graduate student uh, at the University of Calgary and I'm also the host for today's episode. I'm joined today by Dr. John Ferris, professor here at the University of Calgary, where he's also a fellow for the Centre for Military and Security Studies. He's a specialist in diplomatic, international, military and intelligence history, and his latest book is The Excellent Behind the Enigma, The Authorised History of GCHQ. Welcome and thank you for being here. Glad to be here, Tom. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about blockades and sanctions, the history of blockades, what they are, where they come from. And if there's anything in the historical record that can help us understand what's going on today in Ukraine. So to start off and to make sure that we talk about these terms correctly, would you be able to define what a blockade is, where it comes from and how it differs from the sanctions that we see against Russia today? Essentially, what a blockade means is that you are interrupting the normal mode of trade or provisioning, either on land or at sea, although it's usually at sea. If you think about a siege of a fortress or a city, that involves a blockade, because what, among other things, what you're doing is shutting off access from the exterior to the city. But normally, we think of blockades as being done at sea. Now, Blockades take a lot of different forms historically, and it's important to realize that the sea is a commons. It is not controlled directly by any one power. And things like piracy are, in fact, normal forms of maritime behavior. But if we're thinking about blockades in the modern sense, we're really thinking about blockades that emerge in the late early modern period, particularly, I'd say, around 1700, 1600. And under those circumstances, what in effect happens is that one organized state with a navy uses its naval force in an attempt to prevent the mercantile trade of the other side from continuing. So in other words, you're using military force against civilian assets. Now, at the same time, the other side will try to stop you by using its own force as well. Now, blockade develops between 1600 and First World War. But what I would say is that it's a common part of any major systemic war of that period, and especially one involving British. The First World War involves, I would argue, the most serious attempt to blockade ever attempted up until that time. The aim really is to cut off the ability of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and its allies from importing goods by sea or exporting goods by sea. And in effect, the British take command of the world economy when they're conducting their blockade against Germany in the First World War. And blockade has continued since. Now, among other things I'll mention is that it can take a lot of different forms. You can blockade in peace, or you can blockade in war. So in the 19th century, there was a doctrine called Pacific blockade or peaceful blockade by which, in effect, Western countries with large navies would blockade the coasts of relatively weak third world countries, say in Latin America, without declaring war. And that's kind of like the blockade that we are conducting to some degree against Russia today. Now, the difference between blockade and sanctions is that sanctions are a deliberate effort in peacetime to damage or hurt another party, usually a state, by, in effect, forbidding it to buy or sell items. 
you're doing so without declaring war. Because normally, if you declare a blockade, it is a form of war. For a warship to stop a mercantile ship with State B's flag can well be regarded as an act of war, although you might find some specific justification. Now, sanctions emerge after the First World War. They emerge when the League of Nations is established. And because the man who ran the blockade in Britain, Lord Robert Cecil, is also a very important figure in the League of Nations, what he does is suggest that we can use, the civilized world can use sanctions as a means short of and less destructive than war in order to prevent states from doing bad things. And the United Nations later picks up the gist of the sanctions regime. And what has been very clear, I would say, in the past 30 years, 40 years, is that the United States in particular has come to use sanctions as a very common tool in its arsenal in peacetime. So if it's in very bad relations with any one country, let's say Iran, the Americans will, in effect, use sanctions to prevent the Iranians from buying and selling certain items with the aim of damaging the Iranian regime or perhaps making the Iranians stop threatening American interests through other So with the Iranians sponsor terrorism, the Americans use sanctions. Now, final $64,000 question going back to a game show of my youth is, so what? My own experience as an historian, and in fact, I'm doing two books right now on the blockade of the First World War. My own experience as an historian is that blockades and sanctions do inflict a lot of damage. And that damage can be enough to make other people rethink their policy. But what also is clear is that it's very, very hard to quickly knock any major power out through blockade or economic warfare. I've seen innumerable war plans which operate on the assumption that, gee, blockade should be able to knock the other side out fairly quickly. We're talking about matters of years. And if you're conducting a blockade or sanctions, you're also suffering because you're damaging yourself, you're damaging the world economy, and you're also driving your rival into escalatory behavior. And the escalatory behavior might be very costly for you. So the best example that comes to my mind is in the First World War, when the British declare their first variance of blockade on Germany when the war breaks out. Basically, the British start out fairly mild in their arguments. But as time goes by, they start to become more firm. They're going to really try to shut down all of German trade. But the, the key point is that when the Germans begin to realize just how easily the British can declare a blockade, they escalate. And the German decision to conduct unrestricted submarine warfare, i.e. to sink on site merchant ships sailing to British and French ports, is actually a very radical step by the Germans. It ultimately is one of the reasons why the United States enters the war against them. But it also inflicts a huge amount of damage on the British and world economies. And what I would say is that for anyone looking at what is happening with Russia today, and Ukraine. Well, the Russian army in Ukraine is bogged down and not doing well. And Putin is escalating. What we've noticed as escalation are these threats to nuke something, which personally, I don't take that seriously, although I believe Putin will consider serious of doing so. But I don't believe we're going to have him 
launching a real World War III. But what the Russians have been doing is demonstrating their ability to escalate in response to Western sanctions. I interpret, for example, the destruction of the two oil pipelines in the Baltic as being a Russian signal. Well, gee, look, if you really push us around, see what we can do. Mm-hmm. And even though we own these two pipelines that have just been badly hurt, there are millions of miles of undersea cable, which we're technically in a position to cut. And if that happens, we can really damage international communications and trade. So in other words, what I would say about blockade is that if you're a major state of war, it's a natural thing to do, and it helps you. There's no doubt in my mind that the, the Germans do ultimately give up in 1918 in part because the blockade is, but it's never going to be simple or easy. And the other side always retains the ability to escalate and retaliate. Right. That makes a lot of sense. That leads nicely onto the next question I had, which was, what do you think most people get wrong about blockades? And it sounds like escalation on the opposition's part is something that doesn't often get talked about enough that even if you put a blockade on, there will be repercussions. It's not going to be a single thing that's going to achieve the military or strategic goals that one actor is is looking for. We come from a culture, I'm talking about an Anglo-American strategic culture, which looks at what you can do with force in different ways than would be true of many continental countries like Germany or Russia. We assume somehow that navies are morally superior to armies. You know, we assume that there, it, it actually should be the case that there should be an international policeman of the seas. We assume that blockade is somehow morally superior because it doesn't kill people. But in fact, what blockade does is generally damage an economy if it's successful. And if it is really successful, what it does is start to wreck the lives of the people who live in that country. So I remember when I was in Japan about 2004, I was at a conference being held in Kyushu. And well, there were dozens and dozens of elderly Japanese people, most of whom were barely above five feet tall. And that was the effect of malnutrition from the American blockade of Japan and the Pacific War. The same thing happened for Germans in the 1920s. One of the effects of the blockade was that you basically drove down the average height of German boys and girls by about four or five inches, and they were permanent physical damage. So the way blockade works is by hurting people, by starving people to death, by wrecking their economy. There are forms of land war that are not as damaging as the effect of blockade. So what I would do is say that We have a tendency to assume that blockade somehow is a type of force that can be used that really doesn't have the sort of moral connotations that is true of actually using armed forces to attack armed forces or soldiers patrolling civilians and shooting at them. But it's still a use of force and it still damages other people and it still kills other people. Beyond that, we really assume that it works much more easily than it does. As I say, as an historian, I don't really see much evidence to say that it's particularly useful as a means to solve a short-term problem. Right. And I'm speaking here as someone who supports the harshest possible economic sanctions against Russia, but I have no belief that that's going to knock the Russians out in the short term. The final thing, and this is actually more peculiar, is that we have become so accustomed to the idea of sanctions that we just don't realize how extraordinary 
it is. Um, the Americans, as I say, have treated sanctions as being a normal part of their diplomatic or strategic arsenals for a very long period of time. And yet you end up with situations where, in effect, the American declarations of sanctions are running roughshod over normal ideas of state sovereignty. So, for example, under the Trump administration, when Donald Trump decided that he would rip up the Obama-era nuclear disengagement agreement between the United States and Iran, one of the things which happened was the Americans then declared that as part of their sanctions on Iran, that they would sanction any company that had any dealings with Iran. And they actually, in effect, were threatening European states and European companies with sanctions in order to make them follow American policy. Now, if this had happened in the 1880s or the 1920s, people would be up in arms because this really is a remarkable American claim. And because the Americans are sufficiently powerful in finance and other areas, nobody's willing to take them on. So we've come to treat sanctions as being a normal way for international politics to work. In fact, it's a fairly recent development. That's not one that really thrills me. So you're saying that blockades are a recent development. Looking at it from the other point of view, how far back do they go? Do you have any historical examples of blockades being used? Is it something that has only really been used in the last 100 to 200 years? Or are there cases of instances going further back that have been misidentified or can't really be labelled as blockades, but are being used in the same effect? Or is it such a specific tool that it can only really be limited to a a more recent aspect of history? Well, what I would say is that I'd go back to saying around 1600, being the moment we can start to talk about blockade in the modern sense. If you go back to international relations in, say, the Mediterranean in the classical Greek period up to the Roman period, or go to the Mediterranean from around 500 ACE up until around 1600, what you find is that you have very frequently countries with navies and trade which are in a state of continuous war with each other. Mm-hmm. Now, what that leads to is more like privateering or piracy than it does to blockade, because it's relatively easy to have ships at sea that seize weaker ships. It's actually much harder to have a navy that can come close to the main ports of the enemy and establish a permanent presence around those ports, and then systematically block the movement of ships from a port to the sea and outside. So there's economic warfare at sea going back as long as we know. And among the earliest records we have referring to people trading at sea, also refer to piracy. Mm-hmm. In Homer, there's one point where I think Odysseus brings a ship ashore, and somebody asks, are you a trader or are you a pirate? In fact, you could be both very easily. So the distinction between that sort of thing and the economic warfare that we associate with blockade is that blockade focuses much more on systematic attempts to shut ports mm-hmm. from access to the sea. It strives to maintain state-centralized control over the use of force against enemy warships. So privateers are a kind of legalized pirate. But what that does, however, do is mean that the state still has some control over the way they behave. And I can see parallels with 
the way economic warfare is conducted in the middle 1600s with the way it's conducted in the middle of the 20th century, whereas it is much harder back before 1600 to find anything of the sort. So in other words, what I'm really saying is that blockade is one form of economic warfare at sea. It's one which has more direct state control over it than earlier forms have done. And it is focused much more on trying systematically at a national level to shut down trade between a state and people abroad. Now, at the same time, if you look at the colonial policies of European states at this time, they're also using a state-directed approach toward Mm -hmm. building up economies, building up colonies in order to strengthen your national economy. So in that sense, blockade is... A natural change in the way economic warfare was conducted to fit new attitudes toward how a state should direct strategic issues. So if blockades are related to the development of statehood, uh, particularly in Western Europe, as you're saying, how have they justified blockades? Because as you say, it's similar to privateering and you're having to board other nations' ships. Is it a matter of just powerful nations or actors being able to do what they want because of their own power projection? And is it something that's considered the legality of blockades? Yes. In fact, international law is fundamentally linked toward blockade. And I would argue, actually, that blockade law is probably the single most important form of of law of war to be developed in the early modern period. There is never a case where everybody accepts the same law of the seas. And without question, people with stronger navies have much more expansive arguments about what they should and should not be allowed to do. So their claims for blockade rights are somewhat more extreme than those of people with smaller navies, let alone neutral. Mm-hmm. From the point of view of neutrals, you want to be left alone by both sets of belligerents in order to make as much money as you can. On the other hand, a belligerent with a stronger navy is in a position to make you listen to his arguments. And there's no doubt that the way neutrals behave in terms of mercantile trade can provide an advantage to one belligerent or another in a war. And so whenever you're talking about blockade or sanctions, you are discussing issues where there are big differences over the international law of the sea. And the law of the sea, in turn, often lags behind the way realities work. So simplest example is this. There is really no systematic revision of the various laws of the sea adopted by most Western countries in the 19th century. Now, there is something called the Declaration of Paris from 1857, which in fact does say that certain things which are part of the law of the sea will no longer be accepted. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the Declaration of Paris is very loosely written, and you could drive a truck through many of its clauses. (laughs) But by the time we get to the outbreak of the First World War, the laws of the sea are so far removed from reality that had the British really wanted to be tough, they could quite literally have seized every single neutral merchant ship at sea, quite legally, and brought them in for condemnation of the prize court. Because all laws of the sea at the time assumed that on every ship, there would be documents showing who owned what piece of cargo on the ship and who was buying. And that's what all international laws of the sea assume should be the case. And if you don't have those papers, says every area of international law, then you're free to be seized by any belligerent because he has prima facie proof that there may be contraband. The problem is that by 1914, 
There is not a case in the world where merchant ships carry papers indicating who owns what piece of good. And in fact, it's entirely possible for ownership of a given item on board a ship to be transferred while the ship is sailing from port A to port B. So I will say that whenever you are dealing with cases where law affects blockade, you're always running into legal issues. Another example, which I think is quite interesting, comes from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States makes a very good decision, which is that they are not going to allow Soviet merchant ships to sail directly to Cuba. Instead, Soviet merchant ships will be stopped and inspected by American merchant ships. Now, this is technically speaking illegal. And had the Americans done it, the Soviets could have regarded this as being an act of war. Mm-hmm. But the Soviets, in fact, backed down before this American threat for one simple reason. Most of the ballistic missiles they have on Cuba don't have warheads. Most of the warheads are being sent on the, precisely the ships the Americans are going to search. <laughs> and the Americans do not know this both. So the Soviets conclude quite rationally, all right, we are not going to let the Americans seize our nuclear warheads. And that goes a long way toward ending the, the clash. But I would say that there has never been an instance where I've seen two different actors arguing over what is or is not legal at sea, where they both are not able to come up with a seemingly plausible legal doctrine to defend their position. And what settles the decisions in the end is who's got the biggest amount of sea power. We've talked a lot about Western Europe and America. Do you have any ideas about blockades that have happened outside of these areas, either in Africa or Southeast Asia? Is it something that's unique to the naval powers, as you say, of Britain and America, or is it much more worldwide? Modern blockade is created by Western European maritime powers in the 1600s and 1700s. There are a couple of naval powers based outside of Europe at that time, Oman, for example which is actually a significant player in trade in the Indian Ocean. But none of them changed from their previous approach toward economic warfare, which, as I said, is in some ways close to piracy, until the middle of the 19th century. From the middle of the 19th century, when non-Western states start to build up navies, they also start to then pick up on Western ideas of international law. And in some ways, they practice blockade the way Western countries do. So when Japan goes to war with China in 1892, and then in the 1930s, again, it is declaring blockade and using Western models and Western legal rationales to justify what it does. So this is like a lot of things in terms of statescraft. Things which happen in Western Europe between 1400 and 1600 ultimately become part of the normal reality for power politics for all countries across the world. You mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis as being an example of an effective blockade, one that helped decrease the tensions between the Soviet Union and America at the time. And you've also mentioned in the First World War that the blockade was in part a reason for surrendering. But overall, would you say that blockades are effective? Is it just a tool that needs to be used with something else? Or can a blockade in its own right be something that's just used, as you say, with the Americans using it as part of their normal operating procedure. Is that enough? And are blockades actually effective? Well, I think the first point I would make is that blockades do have some effect. It can be counterproductive, but nonetheless, in a lot of cases, through blockades or sanctions, you may well be able to put pressure on somebody else. 
it is extremely rare to be able to do it quickly or for free. And I'm struggling in my mind to think of other examples like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where you could make that kind of case. Usually, it is most effective if you're involved in a prolonged war of attrition between large coalitions, where economic warfare, in fact, is unavoidable mm-hmm. and might be a very effective way to weaken the other side. So if you were to look at the First World War, in effect, Russia is blockaded because it's cut off from access by sea to its allies, except through Vladivostok or the White Sea, or when it's winter, you can actually, bizarrely enough, have sledges carrying (laughs) goods that move across portions of the Baltic. So Russia is blockaded, and there's no question that one of the, the dilemmas for Russian military power in the First World War is the fact that it's suddenly confronting lots and lots of new economic problems, which it's not very good at solving. Now, the British and the French throw the same problem against the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, and it does really weaken both of the other side. In the case of Austro-Hungary, for example, the Hungarian portion of the empire is much more significant in terms of agricultural production, whereas the German-controlled portion actually has to import calories in order to maintain its standard of living. And essentially, the Hungarian half of the empire starts to refuse to ship food to the German portion. The Germans are better at dealing with these issues. So, for example, the British blockade tries to cut the Germans off from access to specific forms of metals or goods. And the Germans are reasonably good at coming up with replacements. So what happens in the case of the Germans is the blockade has a smaller effect than it does against the Austro-Hungarians or the Russians, because the Germans are better equipped to make decisions to Mm -hmm. overcome the problems. Having said that, the blockade really does affect German caloric levels. Right. You can make an argument for saying that blockade is one of the vectors that leads toward the deaths of a couple of hundred thousand German civilians in yeah. the turn of winter, 1916-17. And certainly it puts a cap on the ability of the German economy to produce munitions. Mm-hmm. So it does damage the Germans, but not enough to knock them out. And in fact, the Germans, really what happens to the Germans in 1918 is their soldiers are willing to make one last major offensive and see if maybe you can knock the enemy out or the Americans get fully committed. But once those offensives fail, the German army loses its willingness to fight. And I'm willing to say part of the reason it loses its willingness to fight is the effect of blockade. The fact that their families back home are badly, that very often you're down to only one or two the items of clothing, etc., etc. Yeah. So one of the reasons why the German army gives up when it still has several million armed men who are quite competent is because it concludes we can't win, and if we try it, all that's going to happen is the more of us will die. In the case of Japan in the Second World War, if if the Americans had been willing to hang around for a couple more years without actually dropping atomic bombs or invading. The Japanese population would be in such a state of starvation that possibly the regime would have collapsed. But what I would emphasize in both of those cases is that the effect of blockade took four or five years to really directly affect the ability of the other side to fight. And if you look at the issues of sanctions that we were talking about earlier in the past 40 years, well, the Americans certainly have distorted the Iranian economy. They've damaged the Russian economy in different ways. 
you know, during the Cold War, there was a struggle, among other things, about Soviet access to Western technology. Sanctions and blockades were used to limit that success. And in the long run, one of the reasons why the Russian state confronts terrible economic crises, it does by the early 1980s, is because, in effect, sanctions have, and blockades have kept it from having access to certain items. But again, we're talking about things which take decades to really manifest their effect. So sanctions and blockades are only really as effective as the actors that implement them. You have to be able to back up and maintain that for a really long period of time in order for it to have an impact as drastic as what you're saying. Finally, then, to bring it back to what's going on with Ukraine and, and Russia at the minute, then, have the sanctions failed against Russia? Is that something, I, I know we've discussed about it needing to take a lot more time. Is that an inherent problem with blockades and sanctions? Or is it that Russia has been successful in mitigating the impacts through dealing with its energy and its dealings with China, for example? Well, first of all, the effect on the Russian economy is greater than we know at the moment. Lots of individual people are finding their lives distorted or ruined. Mm -hmm. And that's making Russians notice what is happening. I don't think that sanctions or blockade have yet had any effect on the ability of the Russian state to deliver military power to the battlefield of Ukraine. What's screwed the Russians are their own inefficiencies and forms of incompetence mm -hmm. in terms of normal military mobilization. Beyond that, the Russians have been lucky in the sense that one of the consequences of this war has been to boost the price of oil and gas, which means that whatever the Russians can sell can bring more back to them. So what I'm saying is, in some ways, the effect of our sanctions has been counterproductive. The rise in oil prices being one example. There is no reason yet to believe that Russia, the Russian regime is suffering any significant problems immediately as a result of sanctions. but I would also say that there's no question that Russians are worried about what things will look like in two or three years. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're particularly worried that they may well be permanently shut out of certain kinds of access to the Western market, which Russians would very much like to keep on their side. So I guess what I would say is that sanctions have been about as effective as you can expect them to be at this mm -hmm. stage. The real point for sanctions is to make it impossible for the Russians to easily steal or buy Western items that they can then weaponize and put into their, their military forces, and also simply to make them realize that they're paying price. But without question, Putin's escalatory responses are going to continue to grow. He's not going to give up on adopting them, because that's about all he's got left. And the end result is that I can see clearly he's going to threaten everywhere he can. And I'm pretty certain the Russians are behind the Nord 1 and 2. Yeah. I think that's the standard view among Western mm -hmm. commentators. And I think the point there was very simple. is showing what he could do if he wants to. So what we have to expect, I'm afraid, is the following. Basically a stalemate in Ukraine, although the Ukrainians are doing pretty well. But I, just, I don't see in the short term which I mean the next year, the war ending with Ukraine recapturing what it lost in the this, this spring or what it lost in 2014. The Russian economy is going to continue to erode, as will ours. 
because there's no question that the way the war broke out and our response through sanctions is also creating economic problems for us. Mm-hmm. In fact, Western Europeans have to think very carefully about rationing fuel supplies. It's another consequence. But I think across the board, the Russians are going to lose there more than we do, and that will become increasingly evident in the next year. But the question is still going to remain, is Putin willing to give up? I don't believe he can. I don't believe that Putin can afford not to look as though he has won with his gambit. And that, I think, means that we're going to see escalation, which will be intended to bite into us. Mm-hmm. So his response to our economic, our form of economic warfare will be a kind of economic warfare as well. And, you know, coming from a small liberal background, most Anglophones, most Westerners, somehow we believe that realm of economics should be distinct from the realm of state struggle. But that's not the case. In real terms, it has never been the case. And even when you had genuinely wholeheartedly committed small L liberal governments like that in Britain in the First World War, they are forced to realize that if you're going to be fighting a total war against a dangerous enemy, you have no choice but to do it in the economic sphere as well. So we think in a way that it's unfair for Putin to be threatening, you know, underwater cables, threatening the internet. Well, my response would be, from Putin's point of view, you're threatening my regime with destruction, which we are. There's no question that we are actually taking steps which could destabilize his government. And for that matter, there's no question but that we've been taking steps with Ukraine in the past 20 years that the Russian government can quite reasonably see as being a threat to them. So our good-hearted attempts to help make Ukraine a democratic place, which is not corrupt, which is open to the world, from the point of view of people like Putin, is a devastating threat to the security of Russia. I'm not saying that he's right, far from it. I'm saying, in fact, that we have to resist him completely. But I do want it to be clear that what he's doing is entirely predictable and rational, much as we don't like. But this is where economic warfare and blockade always leave you in the sense that if you force the other side to retaliate, it will look for ways to damage you. And if, if it has any brains, it will find ways to damage you. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. That was incredibly insightful and interesting, especially that blockades and this economic warfare is far more complicated and relevant than is often talked yes. about, I think, in, in the modern world today. So thank you again for coming on, uh, speaking to us. First of all, take care. That just about wraps up the first episode of season two of Security Escape Podcast. Thank you very much for listening to Security Escape Podcast. You can find us on all of our social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And until next time, this was Security Escape.